Previously on Dry Powder, Jim Strang, Managing Director at Hamilton Lane, offered the short and the long view of the private equity industry's growth prospects. The question for me is not so much, will it grow? It's what will the growth look like? Macro shocks aside, he argues the future is looking bright. But more money chasing more deals could drastically alter the competitive landscape for today's private equity firms. And the winners in this rapidly evolving race will need to get ahead of emerging trends like digital disruption. It can come out of nowhere and it can come really fast. Today on the show, Jim Strang and I talk about how leading firms can turn these threats into opportunities. But sometimes opportunities can also bring challenges between GPs and LPs. You have to be basically all over your GPs, all over their portfolio, all the time. Are they sticking to a sort of a playbook and within their zone of competence, or are they reaching outside of it? And if they deviate from that for whatever reason, then that's a sort of an instant, oh, why did that happen? The nature of the relationship and the structure of the relationship between GPs and LPs could change dramatically. I'm Hugh MacArthur, head of Bain's Global Private Equity Practice, and this is Dry Powder. So, Jim, we all know that the tech and especially software is, is basically eating the world, or seems like it's eating the world anyway. In fact, it can swallow a deal whole if you're not careful. Do you think that private equity firms are really getting up to speed, or are they up to speed? Yeah, I think the number of funds that we see who've who've mentioned this to us is is you know large and ever increasing. I think they really come at it from sort of two perspectives. One and I and I call it the do no harm versus the force for good. The do no harm is we need to have a capability here where um we're not going to be caught out by a disruptive event over the period of our holding. So as you know the, the typical holding periods for deals is rising and rising. Five years is sort of table stakes now. So the x-axis is you know, quite extended here. Um, and I think GPs are very aware of the risk of the whole transformation plan going out the window. And and indeed, some have been caught by that and they've had to manage through it and it's not an easy thing to manage. So there's a sort of a, we must have some sort of sense of how to protect this against this risk. And then clearly the force for good element is rather than get caught out by a disruptive event or to just insulate ourselves from the risk of it, we're going to become the disruptor and we're going to build the muscles and the capability to do that. And we see some of that as well. I think that the the difficult thing from the investor's perspective is to calibrate what the GPs are doing because it's clearly something that they're all wanting to, to do, but it's quite difficult to determine who's got a relative competitive advantage in whatever it is they have. And do you have any acid tests or litmus tests? I mean, how, how can you figure out whether a private equity firm really can diligence these types of threats and opportunities in in the tech world in terms of disruption. And as follow-on, how do they actually remain vigilant during the holding period? Yeah, it's tough. I think there's a few different things. So one is some funds have tech DNA in them. Uh, ones that have grown from venture origins through growth to buyout, for example, tend to have that somehow baked into the DNA. And then it comes down to resourcing. So how have they built the resourcing around the digital capability? Who have they got? How long have they had them? How many do they have? Uh, and then again, if you look through the material around how they've articulated the digital threats and opportunities and businesses that they bought, you can actually read what they've done and you can take some comfort from that. Can you give an example, Jim, of a private equity firm that didn't just prepare for disruption but maybe became the disruptor itself? The, the one that immediately jumps to my mind is the PetSmart deal, which that business model was significantly impacted by consumer internet. And then what the GP did, which I think was very interesting, was they, they identified their company called Chewy. 
which was the digital disruptor. And what they actually ended up doing was buying Chewy. So they, they, they bought the problem. Which I guess just tells us that you need to have the flexibility and aggressiveness to respond to the threats and make them into opportunities if you possibly can, or at least find a way to defend against them. Yeah, exactly. Another good example is a, a restaurant concept, a bunch of restaurants in, a, in an aggregate holding company. Their restaurants were getting increasingly filled up with delivery drivers coming in to take food to customers in their own homes. Their solution to that was actually, you know what, this is a trend which is only going in one direction. Let's become an investor in Deliveroo because that's where it's going to go. And to protect the value of our aggregate investment, we'd rather be part of the solution than part of the problem. If you actually look at tech from a private equity perspective, about half the market is enterprise software, software that has sticky customers, software that's embedded in business. And you can just see that that private equity mindset is about how can I prevent myself from defaulting and losing money in the tech space and get around it by investing in sectors of technology that are more resilient and they just feel better to me and safer and closer into other sectors that I may have invested in. Yeah, I, mean, I think that one of the challenges around that software model, in particular SaaS model, is when you look at it going in, it's a bit of an eye-wateringly expensive business. But then when you sort of play back the resiliency, the repeatability of the business models, then you can see how it all works. I suppose like my um, wake up in the night in a cold sweat um, moment on this stuff is what causes the multiples to contract? If you bought a software asset at 20 times LTM EBITDA, is there a version of the world where that becomes 15? Because if it does, you're going to have to do something pretty transformative to make the numbers add up. Or put another way, if you bought something at 20 and you haven't modeled in an exit at 15, you'd better have something pretty good in your back pocket that you really believe in to generate the value to make it worth 20 when you sell. Right, yeah. And I mean, I think other bits around that which are interesting. As, as the really good franchises around the world all sort of migrate towards a strategy of subsectors and trying to create scale through consolidating to build relative market share, then clearly you can't have too many people playing the same game. The GPs are going to have to figure out who's playing on what pitch. And once a game is like past halftime, don't start playing because you're too far behind the rest of the players. You won't be able to catch up. It comes down to the underwriting on these deals. So I start with a business that makes 100 million dollar euro pounds. And my plan is it's going to get to 200 million. That is the, the scope of my capability and competence to get from 100 to 200 million. Now there's a GP down the road who's looking at the same business and they're starting at 100 as well, except they get to 300. Right? They think the scope of my competence and capability is I'm going to get an extra 100 million out of this. And therefore, my price to go on that journey is very different to the price of the former investor. And what is, I think, really interesting is how are we going to figure out who's actually got the right answer? Mm. You know, what is the right amount of transformative risk that is reasonable? Uh, and how, how do you calibrate that? It's a real problem for the limited partner because you know while the general partner, they're inside the tent looking out and they're able to, to understand their own capability granularly because they live it and breathe it, for the limited partner, they're outside the tent looking in. And it's quite difficult, if not very difficult, to understand who has a differentially superior capability and are they actually implementing it in a sensible risk-adjusted way. It's really the belief in the demonstration of repeatable models in a shifting world, isn't it? You know, do you have the kind of combination of sector expertise, capability expertise, and do you have the discipline to underwrite just the right amount of growth in order to generate an attractive return 
and knit all that together into a repeatable model that actually can generate alpha and do it in, in a very reliable way. It's a hard thing to figure out because the technologies are changing, businesses are changing, and so the muscles that GPs need to build are going to be different five years from now than they are even today. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. When we worked with limited partners 10 or 15 years ago, we'd see a lot of pitch books from GPs, and they all basically said the same thing. Uh, we're smart guys. We've delivered a, a sensible amount of returns. Uh, the team is going to stay together, and we're going to have aligned economic interests. We're going to put some of our money in the fund. And probably 95% of pitch books that would come in the door would look something like that, variation on the theme. I think the bar has gone up in many instances, given the changes in the world and technological disruption, uh, that you need to actually demonstrate beyond that that you have a repeatable model for success. And the way you demonstrate that is not just through saying we have good returns, it's actually going deal by deal and showing from one example to the next how you actually applied that repeatable model to generate alpha. Because that's really, to my mind, the only way that an LP can decide whether or not this model works, whether it has legs for the next 10 years, and whether or not the right people are in place to continue to execute it. Yeah, I think that's right, Hugh. And I think you know, the engagement model for the LPs is, is actually continuing to evolve. So, you know, in, in 10 years ago, your funds would be raised every three or four or five years and the interactions in the middle would be few and far between. And now you're in such a continual dialogue that the way we describe it is that you're either fundraising or friend raising if you're a general partner. There's nothing in the middle. Do you think that that augurs for fewer fund relationships for an LP or at least sort of a professional on the staff of an LP? Because I think in... In, in times past, there was kind of a public equity mean variance thinking that went into private equity, which is I, I better have some exposure to big deals, small deals, mid-sized deals, different geographies, different flavors of everything, and that that was the best way to play the asset class. And we saw LP portfolios in many instances balloon to literally hundreds and hundreds of, of relationships. And what you're saying, I think, is is that this is an actively managed asset class. There, there's not a lot of passive beta here that you want to bet on. You want to bet on smart managers that have a good strategy. And if you're doing that and you're really going to monitor them at the level that you just described, that would seem to imply a greater level of intimacy and a greater level of transparency that just requires more time per fund. Yeah, I think that's right. I think back in the day, you definitely had a, a huge proliferation of, of relationships. And also you had this phenomena that LP investment teams would roll over every four or five years and the new team would come in and go, okay, not invented here. LPs would say, I want to build a European portfolio. So for instance, I want to have um, a flag in the map in Sweden, a flag in the map in Denmark, a flag in the map in Birmingham. Not Birmingham, surely. Yeah, well, no, people do that. And before you knew it, you are 15 years later and you've basically covered the market. It's like mutual fund picking. Every time you pick a, a, a fund and a limited partnership, you get 20 companies. So you know, if you have a 50 fund portfolio, you've got a thousand companies, that's a stock market. There's only 1200 public companies in the UK. So you know, be thoughtful about how you put the pieces together, make sure they're additive. Absolutely, it's tough to beat the market if you are the market. One of the things we always say to GPs is when you're talking to LPs, one of the questions you should ask them is, where is this going to fit in your portfolio? And then, you know, I think LPs will will probably increasingly go down the route of a, a sort of a triage around, you know, not all our relationships are created equally and, and some are, you know, will, will get a different level of attention and monitoring because they'll have greater franchise value and others will have less. But but I think, you know, the, the aggregate is... Um, you know, I think we'll probably have fewer relationships. Yeah. You know, one one thing that might be interesting, the mechanism for 
private market investing, the fund. It's like the Bible, isn't it? I mean, it's mm. it's that old. And you know what what does it look like? So if you future back and go, you know, private markets are going to double in relative share in a market that continues to grow. It's going to be twenty trillion dollars. Are we still going to be raising? you know, 2,000 funds a year, or is it actually going to look different? There'll still be funds, but they won't be the only mechanism. And if you just future forward and go, you know, we're going to grow in the rate that we're going and we're going to do it through funds, we're going to have 5,000 private equity funds raised every year. You know, there are 5,000 on the PPMs in our inbox every year, which just seems like it can't possibly happen. So I would feel something might have to might have to shift. Well, it feels... Certainly at the at the retail level and perhaps even at the institutional level, that having something that is more net asset value based where you're selling shares or units and the net asset value moves over time without the need for fundraising or frankly even liquidity if you don't want to sell assets um, uh, just to generate returns and put money back to LPs would be one way to get around the constant fundraising. You would, act, In effect, you would never really need to raise funds if you were able to issue units or shares. Yeah, uh, and that seems like the way it would go, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's the obvious sort of way to deal with the complexity and particularly as the customer base changes a little bit away from necessarily institutional only to a more broad customer base then to meet their needs, it's probably going to have to go that way. Well, Jim, you know, I'd call you an encyclopedia of private equity knowledge, but we've talked a lot about technological disruption and no one knows what an encyclopedia is anymore. So let's just call you a, a sage and large repository of wisdom of private markets and the private equity space. Thank you very much for coming by the show today. Thank you very much. It's been a, a pleasure to be here and thanks to you. If you don't want to miss future episodes of Dry Powder, Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen. I'm Hugh MacArthur. Thank you for listening.